Welcome to the PaxX Podcast, available on iTunes. This is episode 36 of the show where we talk about everything to do with the passenger experience. I'm Mary Kirby, and I'm joined by my co-host, Max Flight. Max, how are you doing? Uh, very nice, uh, Mary. We've just returned from a road trip that included a couple of aviation activities. One of them was that my wife and I visited the Flight 93 National Memorial in Pennsylvania. Very impressive. Ah, uh, yes, I have been. I have been. In fact, uh, it is uh, Somerset, correct? I guess. It's so far out in the countryside of Pennsylvania that I don't know what town that's near, actually. There's a lot of windmills around. Um, yeah, yes. no, that's... Uh, and I should mention that... Uh, I should mention that we are actually recording after just hearing uh, some of the news about the tragedy in Istanbul today, and our thoughts go out to everyone there, and everyone affected. Yes. But before we get started, we'd like to thank eGate Solutions for sponsoring this week's podcast. We all want happy passengers. They buy more, and they're likely to be more loyal to your airline. But delivering a positive passenger experience is hard when you're relying on legacy systems and manual processes. eGate Solutions provides the technology behind onboard services, connecting and automating every step of an airline's operations from the warehouse to the passenger. With eGate, you can spend less time and money on the process and more on optimizing the passenger experience, which really is what we're all in the business of delivering. Visit eGate Solutions online at www.egate-solutions.com or email them at info at eGate-solutions.com. Solutions to learn more. Now, it's my great pleasure to introduce our guest today. Jason Rabinowitz has quickly become one of the most high-profile avgeeks in the industry. His Twitter thread combines intelligence about aviation and rail with a dash of millennial sarcasm. And unsurprisingly, his following is growing quickly. He's also Route Happy's chief data guy, meaning he is sitting on a treasure trove of PaxX information. And we're also very proud to count him as a member of Roma Girl Network. Welcome back to the show, Jason. Thank you for having me. I hope I can add my dash of millennial sarcasm to the <laughs> I love that. Millennial sarcasm. It's just a dash, maybe a pinch. Just, just a pinch. <laughs> Always good to talk with you, Jason. All right, well, let's take a look at some of the news stories making headlines. First, it's no secret that the American rail system compares unfavorably with that of many other countries that have adopted high-speed rail and a modern infrastructure. But we're seeing some PAXX improvements in U.S. rail. For instance, Amtrak has a new two-floor Chicago Metropolitan Lounge for premium-class travelers and those in its loyalty program. Jason, you're a New Yorker and you know Amtrak and New York Rail well. What's your assessment of the state of the U.S. rail system? Will passengers embrace the types of changes we're seeing? Right now, the the experience is kind of abysmal on U.S. rail services. Uh, Amtrak compares unfavorably to just about any modern country in the world. But they're starting finally to do some modernization, let's say. Uh, They just announced yesterday, actually, a brand new lounge in Chicago that rivals kind of what you would see in maybe a a mid-level airline lounge, uh, focused really only towards passengers on long-distance trains. It's something we don't really have in the Northeast Corridor, where our trains basically go from Boston to D.C. if you go down to Miami. But there are people out there who do enjoy a um, a longer train ride in the United States, and people do it every day. So it, it's good to finally see uh, Amtrak putting some effort into the experience. 
Jason, you are in New York, obviously, and um, some of the pictures that you share on social media uh, are pretty grim uh, with respect to the interiors of, of not just uh, some of the trains, but obviously uh, the stations as well. Um, is there movement afoot in New York to improve the situation? Yeah, for about the past 40 years, give or take. Uh, <laughs> right now, Penn Station in New York is the main rail hub. You have New Jersey Transit there, the Long Island Railroad, and Amtrak is the anchor, uh, I guess, agency. They own the station. And it is just an abysmally terrible atmosphere there. There's no natural light. Every agency has their own signage and, I guess, motif going on. Nobody ever really knows what's going on. And the goal in Penn Station, for me at least, is to spend as little time as humanly possible in that building. So mm -hmm. if my train leaves at 9 o'clock, I will walk in there at 8.55 and step onto the train, if all goes well. Of course, it doesn't always go well, and you end up spending hours on end there, and it feels like the eighth circle of hell. <laughs> but um, they're trying. Eventually, they're supposed to move across the street into the uh, Farley Post Office building, and Amtrak will have their own facility across the street, and New Jersey Transit and the Long Island Railroad can do whatever it is they want with the existing space, but... Construction moves slowly in New York City. Um, we're still waiting on the Second Avenue subway from 1920-something. So uh, we might be waiting a while. I hear you. I take the, the Keystone sometimes uh, into New York. I have to say I'm stunned by the state of the, uh, all I can say is from a personal note, the women's uh, restrooms. It is, uh, it is kind of shockingly bad uh, at Penn Station. <laughs> My trick, uh, if I have to use the, the restroom in Penn Station, is I'll look at the departure board. I'll find a train that's not leaving for a good 10 to 20 minutes, use the bathroom on the train, and then just come up to the departures level again. Oh, wow. <laughs> They're usually clever. a bit cleaner. <laughs> Very clever. Uh, from my many visits to Tokyo back in the day, uh, I remember the commute by train from the Imperial Hotel to Haneda. And it was true, at least then, that you could literally set your watch to the minute by the train arrivals. Uh, Jason, how close are we to achieving that kind of performance uh, in the U.S.? We are not even in the same galaxy uh, right now. I, I recently spent a couple of weeks in Japan earlier this year with um, our friend John Walton, and it was just really a cultural experience to see how exactly the trains were on time. When they say this train will depart at nine o'clock and arrive at eight fifty at um, ten fifty-five, they mean it to the minute, and they apologize profusely if they're a minute late. And right now, if you're on an Amtrak long distance train there's a good chance you don't arrive on the day the train was scheduled to arrive. 24-hour delays are just kind of accepted with Amtrak. Hmm. Mm. Wow. So I guess uh, long-distance travel rails uh, offerings don't uh, look to be stealing any business from the airlines. Not in the majority of the country. The Northeast Corridor is kind of an exception where flying between, let's say, New York and Boston can often be a pretty frustrating experience. I had an issue in uh, February of this year where I just could not get a flight up to Boston. They kept canceling on me, multiple airlines. And the morning of, I needed to get to Boston that day. I booked in a seller ticket. It was about the same or as much as uh, last-minute airfare, but we departed and arrived on time to the minute in Boston. So you really never know what you're going to get with Amtrak, but generally in the Northeast Corridor, it's pretty reliable unless it completely all goes out the window. Hmm. 
Wow. Um, now, it, the Northeast Corridor, or the Boshwash Corridor, as it's often referred to, um, seems like prime area for high-speed rail. Uh, do you think that's ever going to happen? Well, we have, and I'm air quoting now, high-speed rail. The Acela, it, it doesn't really go that much faster no. than <laughs> the Northeast Regional Trains. It makes limited stops, but... Mm-hmm. It's the closest thing we have now, um, and even in most parts of the Northeast Corridor, the Acela trains can't actually reach their top speeds because the track infrastructure is out of date. There, there are parts of the uh, the railway where it's shared with freight, so they can't. They have to legally be limited to their speed. Um, sections are controlled by state government, so if you're in Connecticut. It's maintained by the state of Connecticut, and they only maintain the tracks to 80 miles an hour. So it's it's a long, long way off. But Acela 2 is kind of on the horizon right now. New trains should be coming relatively soon in the grand scheme of things, and hopefully that speeds it up a little bit. Yeah, no, absolutely. My goodness. Maybe we'll also get faster Wi-Fi. That's um, something they're working on as well. Yeah, so they right now they use uh, the obviously the cell towers, correct? Is there any chance that they're going to get a satellite-based solution? I know we know of a number of in-flight connectivity providers that would love that business. Yeah, Amtrak put out a few uh, requester proposals a couple months ago. It's actually on uh, RGN right now, the, the article I wrote up. Uh, they are building a dedicated trackside network in the Northeast Corridor, but that's just not feasible over tens of thousands of miles of their track. So they want to do satellite-based connectivity in the rest of the country, but they haven't quite figured out how or when they're going to do that. There's a lot that goes on, uh, t- uh, narrow and pretty tight tunnels these trains have to go on, so putting a, a uh, radome on top of these coaches might not even be possible. All right, well, let's move on. And uh, I understand there's a new word that's entering the AvGeek lexicon. Now, I first heard the term hump spotter from Mary. <laughs> And to be honest, I thought it suggested something a little rude. But as I've learned, it's not. And now we see airlines around the world are fitting their aircraft with satellite-supported connectivity. And now we see the humps on top of these aircraft are for the antenna system and radome. Uh, Jason, you might be the most avid aviation hump spotter in the world. Or are you seeing more humps out there? Can you tell them apart? Yeah, each and every day we're seeing more and more airlines roll out more and more Wi-Fi across their fleets. And um, I don't know how I ended up being the world's authority on, on hump spotting, but <laughs> here I am. And uh, yeah, it, it's definitely an interesting time. Uh, so many airlines are rolling out Wi-Fi and they're doing it just so ferociously. United, uh, just this last week, finished their basically fleet-wide rollout of Wi-Fi. And for a long time, they were ridiculed of being late to the game, that they didn't offer it really at all, except for the premium flights on the Transcon routes. But now, lo and behold, they're done. So they joined Delta and a couple other airlines that are basically done rolling out Wi-Fi. Yeah, that's really, uh, it is really exciting for passengers there. Although, alas, I was on a United flight the other day and the Wi-Fi didn't work, which is always Difficult if you're hoping to get work done, obviously, in flight uh, before you land. And, um, and in fact, it was their satellite-based solution um, 
on their 737. But these things happen, as we know, and as you experience on a regular basis as well, Jason. When you are, uh, you know, trying to tell these different humps apart, what do you look for? I mean, I guess obviously you start with the name of the airline and you know kind of inherently what some of the deals that they have made. But is there any, like, markings on the humps to be able to tell them apart? The humps pretty much just say, do not paint and do not step on them. Uh, you, you don't want to do either of those. Uh, but each manufacturer and provider actually has kind of a unique shape to it. The the Panasonic radome that they typically install is a little more curvy than the, I can't believe I'm saying this, but then the um, Global Eagle radome that um, is a little more kind of boxy. And then there's no radome at all for uh, go-go aircraft that use air-to-ground. There's a little antenna on each side, and that denotes ATG4, where the regular ATG doesn't have the side antennas. It's only the little ones on the bottom. And then there's L-band, which really you can't even tell that's on board because it's such a small antenna that many aircraft that don't have Wi-Fi at all just have it for SATCOM use. So there's all these radomes come in all sorts of shapes, sizes, and even colors when airlines decide to paint them to match the rest of the fuselage. Yeah, it is pretty remarkable. And, and some of them don't have necessarily the smallest profile. Um, I have I have heard some kind of unfavorable comments uh, that people think it uh, looks like a pimple, for example, or a wart on top of the <laughs> aircraft. Yeah, they're, they're not too subtle. These things, <laughs> when you finally realize what it is, they stick out like a sore thumb. With um, the exception of the GoGo 2KU antenna, that thing is pretty slim. And if you're not looking for it, you probably probably won't even notice it's there. That's interesting that you say that. So you're you're having to kind of peel your eyes to be able to see 2KU. Yeah, well, right now, it's for the most part, it was initially installed on uh, larger aircraft. Uh, it was on the A340-600 at first, which is an exceptionally long and wide aircraft. And it, the scale, the antenna may be quite large, but in the scale of the entire aircraft, it actually looks pretty slim. And now it's uh, being installed on Aeromexico 737s, and even then, it's pretty tricky to spot if you're not looking for it. Hmm. I'm thinking there should be a web page, a hump spotting web page with the photos it? for all these. I, I know there's a hump spotting hashtag on Twitter, but if there's some <laughs> other resource out there that uh, we should know about, <laughs> folks should let us know. That would Thanks. make my, uh, my job quite a bit easier if people did that. Yeah, the cogs of my brain are churning right now. I wonder if there isn't an opportunity there. <laughs> there are good resources out there if you know where to look, and that's all yes. I'll say about that. Yes, and you do seem to know where to look, Jason. You've honed your skills over the last few years. Yes, and you've definitely helped. And there's also some obvious points, like if an aircraft rolls out of a Boeing facility, it's almost 99.9% Panasonic because they're the only ones that are able to put it online fit. And, uh, of course, now, although although just a couple of days ago, uh, at least some headway at least being made in Europe with supplemental type certification, not yet line fit, but uh, the ability to install the new Imarsat Global Express service on the A320 that's going to be rolled out on some 150 Lufthansa A320 family aircraft. And Lufthansa is saying uh, that other airlines within the group are going to get the same solution, and the airline is also going to try a hybrid air-to-ground slash S-band satellite solution. So much activity going on. And I have to say, Jason, I mean, you must be having to create in the Root Happy database uh, new slots for all of these uh, different types of antennas. Yeah, we've got a whole bunch of different combinations now. Um, we keep track of this as granularly as we can. 
But uh, I'll have to cook something up for when we eventually get GX uh, S-band hybrid. I don't know what I'll do with that, but <laughs> got to figure that one out. But first, we got to see GX in the wild, test it out, see how it performs if it lives up to the hype. I was going to say, from a passenger ex- experience standpoint, what are you seeing on social media and your own experience? Um, I, I know we've all had kind of different experiences with in-flight Wi-Fi, but what has been the optimal experience for you thus far? In-flight Wi-Fi today, unfortunately, ranges from absolutely unusable to absolutely amazing. We've gotten to the point where some airlines have rolled out Wi-Fi fully on their fleet, but it's a first-generation product that in 2016 and moving forward is just not usable. Uh, You published a story today from Seth Miller when I was actually on this flight with him where we were on an Almaha A320 operated by Qatar and had L-Band on board to our surprise. And Seth Miller was the only person on board using this system and he really couldn't do anything with it. It was quite astonishing to see that on a narrow body, single person, he couldn't even reload specific sites. And then on the opposite end of the spectrum, you have um, airlines like JetBlue and United who are offering Viasat KA regional Wi-Fi and you can do whatever you want with that system. I, I've streamed Netflix from coast to coast without so so much as buffering. Yeah, that's pretty remarkable. And, of course, American Airlines recently announced that they are going to go with that solution for a portion of their fleet. Uh, and the company Viaset that provides it hopes that it's going to be able to crack in and, and get even more of those aircraft. Uh, so there's a lot of competition in the market right now. Um, 2KU, of course, from GoGo, also an option for these airlines. And, and some, uh, obviously, European carriers recently went in that direction. So uh, the competition is fierce in in-flight connectivity. It's one of the reasons why we write so much about it. <laughs> we do. And it, it's yeah. also one of the trickiest parts about in-flight Wi-Fi right now is, as you mentioned so many times, managing expectations. Within the same airline, you can go from a basic first-generation system, which can only do the simplest of tasks, to a medium-grade system, which can do basic web browsing. You can tweet, send pictures. You can maybe watch live TV if they have IPTV on board. And then on the same airline, you can have a connection where you can stream Netflix. So how the heck do you manage expectations and tell passengers what you'll get on every fleet type? Oh, yeah. And are we in a situation now where the airlines kind of have a problem because of the level of competition, because of the, the cost to upgrade, and because of this difficulty managing uh, customer expectations are are they in a mode of having to spend a lot of money to uh, compete effectively? Is that becoming a problem for them? Well, let's take Delta for example. A, a, a simple seven five seven at this point already would have been upgraded from ATG to ATG four to KU and eventually to two KU, and that's in the span of only four to five years. So we're going through a, almost a system per year on these aircraft on certain airlines. And every time they have to take it out of service to put a new system on board is revenue lost. But it could be revenue gained back by gaining those customers' trust back and marketing that, hey, we have the best Wi-Fi system in the sky. So if that's what's happened in just four years, imagine what the next four hold in stock for yeah. us. It's interesting. It's interesting you say that, Jason. I remember when uh, when uh, we launched Runway Girl Network and had a lot of content about in-flight connectivity. I remember somebody saying, kind of somewhat snidely, "Oh, you know, once the world fleet is equipped, you know, it's not something that you'll even need to write about or worry about." And I thought that's a 
that's kind of a short-sighted mentality because airlines are buying new aircraft and moving old aircraft around and they're doing the same with the hardware um for particularly for passenger experience it is becoming rather competitive the in-flight technology space so um it is fascinating to watch and i can say that we never have a shortage of things to write about at real my girl <laughs> <laughs> yeah i don't see an end in sight uh, i don't I either really don't. i really don't uh, well, Jason, as we know, you populate one of the best PaxX databases in the world, and that's Route Happy. But uh, Route Happy is a lot more than that, and it's been the news a lot lately for its work in powering merchandising content for flights. So you've uh, inked some key deals lately with Delta and United and Sabre. Uh, Jason, what can you tell us about the direction the firm is headed, and what do these arrangements mean for the passenger experience? So these arrangements basically in simple terms mean you'll be able to find our data and our information in a whole bunch more places. And it goes way beyond what you may have seen on Route Happy in the past, which is just basic amenity information and maybe a score. What airlines and marketers are able to do is highly specifically target amenities and features that they want to advertise and actually get it to the end user. So if you're booking on one of our partners that has signed with us, let's say uh, Skyscanner. In the future, airlines will be able to go into the what we call the Root Happy Hub and create what we call universal product attributes or universal ticket attributes. So they can go in with high-resolution media, maybe a 3D tour, uh, high-resolution pictures of the airplane, whatever they really want, and then add some text to it. And then we come in and we target it to individual Subfleet. So there's no more of this only available on select flights, or we have the best entertainment system only on flight 572 and 578. So we can actually highly target that information and then make it available on OTAs and even through direct channels. So an airline that signs up with us, instead of just seeing the little icon for aircraft type, 32S, Wi-Fi, maybe, we can actually tell you exactly what's going to be on board and whatever the airline wants to show to the passengers, whatever they've been spending millions and millions of dollars on improving, they can actually show now. Wow. Um, that means that these companies really need to uh, stay on the ball stay with their passenger experience improvements because now this is a level of visibility that really hasn't uh, been given to passengers really before in a cohesive way. Do you think that's fair to say? Absolutely, yeah. If you go to most OTAs now or Meta or even airline direct channels, you get virtually no information. You see the flight time, the duration, maybe an aircraft code, but that's it. You have to do so much research to figure out what's on board that aircraft, how much the change fee is, what, how, many, uh, how many bags you can take on board. We're trying to take all that hard work and make work with the airlines directly to actually convey this information to you know, the passengers, the people who need to actually see this stuff. And airlines have been super receptive to it because nobody has really done this before. Nobody's gone through this level of detail to not only take information about flights, but actually target it to those specific flights. Mm. Wow. Interesting. It's like, yeah, it's like filling a need for sure. Yeah, well, that's that's what we're hoping. Jason, how does the technology work? Is Root Happy 
uh, providing the applications that provide this data, or is Route Happy providing an API, and then the airlines and others can access the database through that? How does this work? So a little bit of both, actually. Our legacy product, Scores and Amenities, there is an API, which uh, hopefully very soon anyone can go to our site and just pay us uh, whatever amount, however big they are, uh, determines that. And they can just hook directly into our API and pull information down. And maybe we should define API for those listening who might be unfamiliar with that technical term. I I think you've got me. I know what an API is, but I don't know what it stands for. Application Programming Interface. There it is. Okay, yeah, let's just pretend like I knew that. So that that's one side. But the other side is is everything goes through the Root Happy Hub. It's where an airline or, or we directly, depending on what the customer prefers, we, we go in, we create the text, the headline, the imagery, and exactly what we want to target it to. So be it um, in an individual route or an individual subfleet or um, specific market, let's say West Coast to East Coast. And then the airlines through an API or other mechanisms can bring that information directly onto their own site. So they could actually use the Root Happy Hub to market on, let's say, on any airline website. Wow. Yeah, that and, makes and it that includes, powerful. Yeah, that, that, and images as well, Jason, you say, because I find that like most helpful. <laughs> that and measurements of, uh, of, say, for example, seat pitch. Uh, do we get an idea of, of these kind of measurements when you drill down to that level? So we can do pictures, uh, videos, 360 tours, external links, pretty much anything you throw at us, we'll find a way to embed it right on the site. Mm-hmm. Our existing amenity data is also available. If an air, if there is interest from airlines, I can't mention any, that actually want to use our Root Happy amenity information on that airline website. Mm. I would love to see that happen because you guys have been kind of a trusted data source um, for years. And I know that there are other data sources out there that, uh, you know, I've, I've had kind of mixed results with that shall remain nameless. Um, <laughs> it, would be, uh, it would be great to see that from a passenger experience standpoint. Um, to, I guess the maximizing visibility is fantastic, but it, it sounds like this sounds like a good deal for the, uh, for the partners that you're working with, which, as you say, spans everything from airlines to uh, travel, online travel agents to even global distribution systems, right? Kind of filling a need for them. We have an agreement with uh, Sabre. And we'll have everyone from airlines directly to consumers on OTAs to travel agents using this. Wow. The Internet really changes the game when it comes to uh, making information available to consumers. Uh, And this is an example of that just kind of continuing to the next level. Uh, I mean, maybe we started with air passengers having more access to fare information, seat information, things like that. And it just kind of keeps increasing, increasing where the uh, situation is that it becomes uh, harder for airlines to compete on on the basis of uh, certain features because uh, the consumer knows, you know, what the competition is doing as well. Yeah, knowledge is definitely power for the consumer. And in this case, we're trying to bring a little more power to the air travel industry. I love that. Power to the people, Jason. <laughs> and in-seat power to the people as well. We want that for our personal electronic devices as well. If anybody's listening out there, that's what we need as well. Southwest, okay. Exciting stuff coming up in the very, very near term that I can't quite talk about yet. But uh, hey, maybe by the time this podcast is actually published, it'll already be out. 
Well, if it is, we'll definitely link through to it in the in the text of the piece, Jason. Well, we are rapidly coming to a close. I want to thank our listeners. Remember, you can find us online at www.runwaygirlnetwork.com and on iTunes. Be sure to follow all the Runway Girl Network activity on Twitter at at @runwaygirl and remember to join us and use the PaxX hashtag when tweeting about the passenger experience. I'd like to reiterate our thanks to our sponsor, eGate Solutions, and I'd like to thank Jason for being our guest. Jason, where can listeners find you at? Oh, where can't you find me? Uh, Twitter <laughs> at airline flyer, Snapchat airline dot flyer, because I was too slow picking that up. Uh, <laughs> those are the two. You, if you don't find me on Twitter, uh, you're not looking hard enough. I was going to say, you're a tweeting machine, man, and I love your feed. Thank you. That's where you'll find me. <laughs> uh, Jason, thanks so much. Thank you, Mary. And we'll ask all of you to join us again next time as we talk about the passenger experience on the PaxX podcast. Take care, everyone. Thank you.